and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivet Karnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. And today, in a world where feelings seem to count as evidence, how can we still have a shared understanding of what is true as we make policies that will affect the future of all of us? We look at the latest data and ask what solutions exist, and we explore this issue with Bill Nye, champion of science, author, and science educator of generations of Americans. Thanks for being here. So, this week, we want to explore the very topical wait, 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 issue wait, 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 of how wait, wait, we maintain... Wait, Tom, wait. I'm going to interrupt you. <laughs> Hi, Christiana. Tom, thank you for that very enthusiastic introduction. However... <laughs> Oh, no, I know I'm in trouble. <laughs> Paul and I would like to welcome you back out of jail. Did you have to put bail down? How did you get out oh. of jail for um, putting your daughter and your daughter's friend to work when they're both minors? We just wanted... You don't need to answer in public. You can tell us later, okay? Let's, but, let's just say it was heroic uh, and I'm back. Okay, well, welcome back. And secondly, Tom, Tom, you know that I am particularly sensitive to this American thing because America is a continent. It is not a country. There are more than 40 countries in the continent of America. And I think what you meant to say is that Bill Nye has actually been a voice for science for decades of U.S. citizens. <laughs> it is it is a full five years, I think, since you stormed into my office at the United Nation. And I don't think you actually nailed it to the wall, but that's probably what it felt like, a sign that had a picture of the United States on one side and the whole of the Americas on another with learn the difference in big letters on the bottom. And clearly I'm not making much progress. Well, this is five years ago? You're not a very <laughs> fast learner. Apparently. I sort of, I kind of go into a a whole tension about it when it happens and it just gives me a brain funk. So I have no problem at all walking around the world saying, well, United Statesians and the United Statesians of this, and I can't (laughs) believe the United Statesians. And people think I'm crazy, but I have learned the lesson. (laughs) I have to say, this is a very interesting topic for a podcast. The difference between America and United States. Sorry, listeners. No, no, I appreciate the welcome back and the correction. I will endeavour to get it correct. Wonderful. <laughs> Shall we carry on with the show? Yes, please. Go for it. All right. So, guys, let's kick off into the topic we want to discuss this week. And I think, you know, we talked about this earlier, but the, the key issue, and it's something that I know all of us have been concerned about, is the quite remarkable reduction in confidence in science around the world in recent years. If you look at the data, about one in three people around the world don't have confidence in the finding of science. And each year, last year that went up by three percentage points. And each year it seems to be creeping up. And if you look across the world at the examples of leadership we have um, in different countries, you can kind of surmise as to what might be going on here. But if we're going to deal with the critical issues we have before us, climate change being only one of those, but there being others as well, we're going to have to maintain our sense of how we determine what a fact is and how we translate that into shared action. So that's the issue that we want to dig into today. Well, um, Tom, here's a question to you. That data that has to do with uh, more people questioning science, that is science in general. It is not data with respect to climate change. Is that correct? Right. Okay. Correct. Because, you know, I think it's actually quite fascinating that as 
trust in science diminishes. At the same time, polls, public opinion polls, about the recognition of the negative impacts of climate change are actually going up. Yeah, that's true. That's, that's a true. very interesting difference there. And perhaps one could explain it by saying that doesn't have to do with the science of climate change. That has to do with just experiential recognition that climate change is happening, whether they understand yeah. the science behind it or not. So, you know, that that's one possible explanation for that difference. But in any event, in any event, it is very clear that because we have run out of time on, uh, on responding to uh, climate change, there has never been such an urgent urgency, excuse the duplicity there, such an urgency on really moving forward according to science, according to what science says is necessary. Because frankly, all the efforts that we have put into climate change up until now are fantastic and completely insufficient. And the gap that we have to fill is between where we are and what science demands. So, we have a conundrum here, right? We have a diminishing trust in science and an increasing experiential recognition of climate change and a very urgent need to act and, and have policy follow science. So how do we square that circle? Um, it's way too hard to square the circle. What I'd like to do is just carry on listing the problems because it's much easier in my experience. <laughs> Admiring the problems. Yeah, well, you know, I've got a, some fantastic new ways of looking at them. Um, you know, like, it sounds silly, but in a way, like, distrust in science could be confused by some people with almost like a distrust in modernity. Like, you know, what's science doing for me? It's It's got me on social media 27 hours a day and it, the kind of robot took my job and all kinds of funny things. And and there's a relativity as well. Um, I can never forget, I think it was one of the US comedians, uh, John Oliver, uh, who, who was making fun of something Fox News were doing some, some years ago. They were saying the percentage of people in the US who believed climate change was a problem was low and therefore... It was an irrelevancy, uh, ignoring the fact that the percentage of the US population that believe it's a problem is a complete irrelevancy to whether it actually is a problem. Um, and it's, 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 it's this relativity in what's important, confusing sort of political narratives with, with reality um, that, that, is, that is a part of the confusion. So in terms of what to do about it, um, Tom, you would be the expert. <laughs> well, so... We'll come to solutions in a minute. But oh, I mean, I right. Think, okay, fine. Thank you. <laughs> well, so, I mean, one of the, you know, I mean, I think, and this is a classic example, and we'll get into the land issue in future podcasts because there's been some amazing reports recently coming out as to what's happening with land, both in terms of the potential solutions and also the scale of the destruction. But to just point the finger at, at Bolsonaro uh, in Brazil for a moment, there was evidence that came out recently, this is just one example, to suggest that deforestation in Brazil was up 80% compared to the same month the year before. And he went and fired the head of the agency that came out with that statistic and claimed that it was all falsified. So when you have these examples of leaders that are not allowing objective evidence to hold them to account, that's not even science, right? That's data. Then you get into a whole world in which it becomes much more difficult to, to make progress on these objective issues. I do think it's interesting, though, that at exactly this moment, what we have is, you know, the, the civil disobedience on the streets. One of the main objectives is 
unite behind the science in Greta Thunberg's words and tell the truth in Extinction Rebellion's words. You know, there is this kind of outpouring of realization that we need to have these objective moments, these object, this objective sense of truth to unite behind and to have a shared sense of reality. And to me, that's what's most hopeful, actually, is that people seem to be instinctively and naturally kind of rebelling against this uh, this obfuscation of science. Outrage is what I'd call it. Outrage. The one thing that we have going for us is that, as I said at the beginning, the experience of climate change is actually helping us. So whether people understand the science, which admittedly is very difficult to understand, or not, is it, are we actually in a situation that the worse the impacts get, the more drastic, extreme events happen in more geographies, the more action that is going, is going to be possible, despite the fact that the science is not necessarily being understood. Is that where we are? Well, I mean, so one man who, uh, who I think will have a very interesting perspective on this is Bill Nye, the science guy. Christiana, you met Bill a few years ago at the Science March, is that correct? I did, I did. I met Bill Nye at the Science March in Washington, D.C., um, just a few months after the election of Donald Trump, when it was clear that uh, Donald Trump was about to unleash a war against all science, which has proven true. And there was an impressive march in support of science in Washington, D.C., and that's where I met Bill Nye. He's, I mean, I kind of grew up partly in the US and I remember watching Bill Nye, the science guy, when I was young. And I just think, you know, he's had such an impressive impact in terms of educating people around science. If there's anyone who can sort of talk about the importance of science and the necessity to adhere to uh, what it points us towards, I think it's Bill. Certainly the, the voice of science in the US probably similar to the voice of science and nature of David Attenborough in, in the UK. Right. I, I was uh, Im impressed and, and tickled to find out from my daughter, uh, who's now 30, that when she was in school, she had a very boring science teacher who used to just roll in the TV for the kids to watch Bill Nye. And the kids were delighted because they <laughs> much preferred to watch Bill Nye, who's very entertaining, very educational, and really quite gripping in his explanations rather than their boring science teachers. So that, you know, these are the little discoveries you make as a, when your kids are adults. If you were in the United States, you would have to say, Bill, 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 because that's the way he likes to be called. Amazing. Fantastic. All right, well, let's go and give Bill a call. So, Bill Nye, what a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to dial in and speak to us. Um, this podcast is called Outrage and Optimism, and we've called it that because both of those principles, which taken to their extremes are forms of denialism, but properly applied are very helpful tools of transformation, we believe both of them are going to be necessary to create the types of change that we feel are needed in the coming months and years to precipitate the kind of breakthroughs that are necessary on climate. So that's the origin of what we're doing here. We're delighted to talk to you about science and what's happening with the understanding of science in the world at the moment. Christiana's going to kick us off and look forward to the discussion. 
Thanks, Tom. Bill, thank you so much again for, for joining us. As you already know, you are one of the top heroes of both of my daughters, actually, who grew up in Washington, D.C., and we're always so, so much more enthusiastic about listening to you than to their very boring science teachers. So uh, I, I, you have been a part of our household and of millions of households, uh, certainly if children grew up in the United States for years. So thank you very much for, for bringing sorry, science to the kids. I'm sorry your daughters had uh, boring science teachers. Boring I grew up, science teachers. I know. I know. I grew up <laughs> in the city of Washington, and I had excellent science teachers. Well, good, good for them, and uh, and clearly they had an impact on uh, on you. But that is actually the first question that we wanted to ask you, uh, because Bill, it really uh, is of huge concern that apparently the rejection of science is on the rise in the United States and around the world. In fact, the latest polls that came out in 2018 found that 32% of people question the findings of science, and that number went up three percentage points. Now, you have been such an active part of bringing science to everyone, to children, to adults, um, for decades, and it has not been a partisan thing for you. You've done it very, very much in a big tent. What are you seeing? What trends are you seeing? And what do you attribute that very concerning trend to? So you got to be optimistic. You're not going to get anything done. But the rise of anti-science is almost entirely a result of the effort, the efforts of the fossil fuel industry. So the oil and gas industry has worked very hard to introduce the idea that plus or minus 2%, so traditional scientific uncertainty, is the same as plus or minus 100%. And that idea is wrong. And so the big thing that started is with climate change. And, and then uh, by that, I mean the fossil fuel industry has worked really hard to uh, deny or cherry pick data associated with uh, global warming and climate change. And this has really been a bad thing. And then along with that is the, the blessing and the curse, the blurs of uh, social media, where everybody's voice looks to be of equal... Uh, Standing. E equal authority, right? Yeah. And there, there's even people in here in the 21st century in the world's most technologically advanced or certainly the most technically influential culture in the United States, there's people running around <laughs> saying the earth is flat, which <laughs> it's not. They, they actually so, have conferences that they go to. Uh, and so they are going to be a charming uh, footnote in history, but that they are extant right now is very is uh, well, it's silly, but it's also a little troubling. And so this this will not last. Uh, speaking of outrage, of course, it's outrageous that anybody's running around saying the world is flat and trying to show, especially young people, the world might be flat or the world might be six thousand years old instead of uh, uh, four point five six billion years old, billion with a B years old. Anyway, that that won't last because you can't remain economically competitive if you deny science or don't embrace science just because the technology that emerges from it. We've all got mobile. Heck, you're in Costa Rica. I'm in uh, uh, Western North America. Somebody's in London, and we're all talking like it's uh, we're all sitting next to each other. Because our voices travel at the speed of light, so it's uh, 
it's a troubling time, but it's also an exciting time. And as I believe you all like to point out, if you could not pick where you would be born on the earth, but you could pick when, this would be the time to be born. As much as things seem to be screwed up and as much anti-science as there is around right now, uh, there's actually less anti-science than ever in history. And people, most places are better off than they ever used to be. Not everywhere. Well, well we know that humanity places. has definitely improved its lot, let's say, um, on many different uh, many different factors. Um, but it doesn't seem, I'm going to push you just a little bit more on science, Bill, because um, yes, I will accept that fossil fuel companies have really very intentionally seeded doubt on climate science. But And so one could say, okay, that's the reason why there is still some doubt on climate science. But what is the explanation for the lack of understanding? And I don't even want to use the word belief because science is nothing about believing, right? You just have to understand it. Um, so, but what is the, well, what's the reason why there is such a rejection of science? You know, you and I met the first time, Bill, at the science march in Washington, D.C., when President Trump had just been uh, elected. And uh, during that march, my absolute favorite poster was uh, a man walking. He might have been maybe 72, 73 years old. He was walking with a poster that said, things are so bad that even us introverts have to march on the streets. So, and the, and the fact is, we've gotten worse and worse at understanding and incorporating the consequences of science into our decisions, whether they're personal decisions or political decisions. What, I have the sense that we're moving backward. What, what happened? What happened to the to, you know, enlightenment? What happened to the era of reason? What happened to, to all of those steps forward that we had as a humanity to understand that everything around us is actually explainable um, and, and by science and that policy should follow science. Are we moving back? Uh, yeah, it's all my fault. <laughs> as a science educator, I failed. And so uh, I take full responsibility. No, this won't last. The pendulum is going to swing back very quickly. So what happened was the world's most influential economy, the United States, got infiltrated or uh, messed with by uh, the Russians. And so mm -hmm. this election that everybody thought would, would for sure go one way was swung the other way. And uh, we have this old, old system in the U.S. of the Electoral College where people who have won the popular vote do not become president. And so... Uh, someone who's won the popular vote does not become president. And that won't last. And you'll see things are going to change. So as discouraging as it might be right now, I claim pretty soon anti-vaxxers will be discredited, flat earthers will be discredited, climate change deniers will be discredited. Uh, Fox News will have a lot of economic trouble pretty soon. And uh, the pendulum will swing back and the world's most influential technical society will... Once again, uh, lead. Wake up. We will address climate change. Well, it's just that we're just in a phase. You know, as I say, built into constitutional systems, starting, let's say, with the United States, which I think I'm not the world's foremost authority on constitutional law, 
but became the U.S. Constitution became a model for uh, social democracies everywhere, liberal democracies everywhere. And so uh, built in is change. Change is built in. And so things are going to change back. Of course, for us, uh, citizens of the earth, people like your daughters, the sooner the better. And, Indeed. Uh, so with the coming changes, we're going to address climate change. And as I say all the time, there's three things we need. We need clean water, renewably produced, reliable electricity, and access to the internet or whatever the internet comes to be called, worldwide information, global information. We need all that for every citizen of the earth. And if you make any plan that says something like, well, let's get 50% of the people. No, 100% of the people on earth. That's the goal. And, uh, you know, we, here in the United States, just as an example, just as an example, we've had this just horrible couple weeks where these people are being shot. Yeah. Uh, and and this is based on a law that was created or a tradition that was created over 200 years ago. And so this this is it's going to lead to changes. It's horrible. It's tragic. But I claim that uh, this will lead to change very soon because we just you just can't put up with it anymore. Yeah. And the same will be true of climate change. You know, here in the U.S., uh, floods are more frequent. I'm not saying it's the same, but it's. It certainly, for me as a voter, it reminds me of the changes that need to be made. Uh, we're having more floods, more heat waves. We're here in uh, Los Angeles. We are above two degrees Celsius, the, the nominal goal of the IPCC, the Interge Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And so uh, things are going to change very quickly because everybody's becoming aware of the problem. Yeah. Bill, can I ask? I mean, I, that's super optimistic. I love that. And I think that's fantastic. And well, I, but it's also, I want to blow my brains out because it's just so <laughs> frustrating. That's, but I work with a professional optimist and I'm impressed at that level of optimism, which is fantastic. Um, but I just, I'd really like to press you on like, where are the early signs of that, right? Because I think the other thing that's happening, and I, I, I do agree that in the end, reality has to penetrate to democratic systems that remain to some degree responsive, then reality in the end has to penetrate. But what we're seeing at the moment is, you know, faith in science or confidence in scientific uh, insight is being so governed by ideology. You know, whether you're an anti-vaxxer or you're anti-climate or whatever it is, tends to be determined by the political ideology, which becomes primary and your belief in science, or your faith in certain elements of science kind of almost flows from that. So where does that, where do the first cracks appear so that the ideology kind of um, becomes somewhat softer so people can actually be influenced by reality? Because I think one of the things that's frightening at the moment is you feel like, reality isn't getting into people's heads. Like reality is changing and it's kind of not getting in because people have a different program running sometimes that's based on their ideology. So one of my favorite turns of phrase right now is the difference between what you know and what you believe. So you may know that the earth is four and a half billions, billion years old, but you believe that somehow you're different. You're separate from all that. And uh, so you, that your beliefs are somehow stronger than scientific or provable uh, scientific evidence or provable facts. 
But as I say, this is not sustainable. Yeah. And the number of people who deny science was going to dwindle. You just can't, you're not going to be able to make a living if you don't believe in mobile phones, for example. So uh, as discouraging as it might be, uh, the idea of being outraged is fantastic. So way to go, you guys. I'm outraged. <laughs> Yay. But along with that, uh, you've got to be optimistic. So I'll give you an example of something that's really on my mind these days. Recently, I visited a company that's really trying to make uh, electricity with fusion. Mm. And if this would work, you could produce all the freaking electricity you'd want all the time if this would work. Uh, they say, oh, if we had $30 billion in 15 years, we could do this. Okay, $30 billion. That's a lot of flipping money. But the Apollo program, which we just celebrated the 50th anniversary of, of walking on the moon, humans walking on the moon, that was more like $150 billion. And by one reckoning, $280 billion. So if you threw that kind of money at this kind of research, you may find a way to produce fusion energy cheaply in a way that's scalable. You could make power plants and put them all over the place. And they wouldn't be radioactive. It wouldn't be Chernobyl or this last crazy thing that Russia did with some freaking cruise missile. You'd, uh, you would change the course of human history through investment. But my claim is that with extraordinary government investment, you can do or we can do extraordinary things. And that is why I am optimistic about the future. If we had unlimited electricity, we could desalinate seawater. Most of the people in the world live near the oceans, live on seacoasts. Over half live on seacoasts. We could use that water to irrigate and grow crops. We could have electric light. We could have education for girls and women. And we could change the course of human history. So let's go, people. And, and get Bill, it done. E explain one thing to me. Why is that preferable to invest the $30 billion there rather than investing $30 billion, let's say, into advancing solar energy, which is oh, already well, incredibly oh. cheap and also unlimited? Oh, 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 oh. We must do it in parallel. Okay. Oh, no, no. Yes, yes, yes. So it's not an either we must or. Have wind, so, absolutely not. We must have wind, solar, battery investments. What if we were able to pull that off? We could change the world. And this is an investment in science, and the people that understand it, if I may just tell everybody, are engineers. Yeah. Engineers use science to solve problems and make things. That's our business over here. So uh, to get this pulled off, though, everybody's got to agree that climate change is a serious problem and it has to be addressed. And along with that, to your larger point of this podcast, we got to stop denying science. We need to be outraged and optimistic. Those types of technology, I mean, I don't know enough about fusion, right? It seems to me it's been sort of $30 billion and 10 years away for a while. But, you know, in a way, the situation we're in, which you came to at the end of your point there, is that it is a collective lack of will and realization of the urgency of the situation, particularly, I mean, obviously the leadership in the US at the moment is so heartbreaking when you think about the urgency of the situation oh, we're in and what could be done, right? So, I mean, you know, th those, those fault lines around science and science on climate change and other things run through societies, they run through communities, through families, and things like Fox News can really tear 
groups of people apart. What have you found about how you bridge that divide? I mean, you're very optimistic about the fact that this can't carry on. How can we be, how can people listening to this podcast be effective agents of helping heal that divide that bring people to a belief in science that make them active participants in the kind of things you're talking about? So uh, this is a great question. But the first thing to get anybody to influence anybody and change his or her mind is to listen. So you say, why do you, why do you think that 97, 98% of the world's scientists are concerned about climate change, but your, your um, anchors on Fox News don't seem to be concerned about climate change? Why do you think that is? Is it because there are evil people out there or, the, or there's a conspiracy of scientists, you know, as I like to joke, some of these guys and gals drive Honda Accords just to show you the kind of money they throw around. Uh, and that's a joke, everybody. <laughs> so uh, uh, just listen and then keep in mind that it takes a couple years for most people to change their minds. Mm. You have to hear the arguments more than once for months on end before you... Like if somebody believes that they live in a haunted house... It takes a long time to show them that there's no such thing as a haunted house. But Bill, we all we all use technology, right? And so the the piece that I still have a very hard time understanding is how come technology is all based on science because that's what technology is. It's the application of the underlying science uh, that that is developed in order to let's say make human living um, easier Possible. or more comfortable yeah. or more practical or whatever. So. We don't have any trouble using our technologies, using our microwaves, using our ovens, using cars, using all the technology that is available to us that is all science-based. But then there is this very strange thing that we accept that science because it's practical and useful and we use that, but then we don't accept the other science that happens to be a little bit inconvenient perhaps. How, how do we bifurcate our brains like that? Well, this is the, why the longest journey begins with a single step. Uh, we we got to keep working to get everybody on board. And that's why I say it's all my fault. As a science educator, I have failed. I have failed to get people everywhere embracing the process of science and the changes built in. And, and yes, it's very frustrating, but uh, I, I always say start with a question. Why do you believe that? Why do you think people, scientists everywhere are wrong? And I think it's changing because uh, agriculture is being affected uh, very strongly. You know, the breadbasket of the world really is still central U.S. And uh, soon agriculture is going to move north into Canada. And uh, we're, I mean, more, there's a lot of agriculture in Canada, but there'll be even more agriculture in Canada. And uh, we're going to have to make and adjustments in quickly. Russia. Northern Russia, yeah. So people have made the conspiratorial argument that uh, Putin, Vladimir Putin and his colleagues are uh, promoting climate change to make Russia more livable. <laughs> that may be. So uh, the sooner we get to work, the better. But we can do this, everybody. The key is, uh, the key is, is to tell everybody you have to vote. You know, it's very yeah. common for people to say... Uh, what can I do about climate change? What are five things I can do about climate change? Uh, you, I recycle my bottles and my neighbor doesn't. He is a bad person. Okay, this idea that 
you, that person that we can take personal responsibility for this global problem is only true up to a point. Recycling bottles is good. Not wasting water is really good. But we need big ideas. We need huge changes. We need to get enormous things done on a very, very large scale. And for some of us, uh, that's discouraging and sounds impossible and so on. But we put people on the moon. <laughs> we can accomplish great things if we just get together and do it. And right. do it. There you go. And do so it. the other example, and I'll just, I'm going to go out on a limb again with this, is in World War, my grandfather was in World War I. And he rode a horse by all family, his family myth is he rode around. I wasn't there. I didn't take any pictures of it, but he rode around on a horse at night and he didn't get killed. And that's why I'm here. A lot of his colleagues got killed, but he didn't. And here I am through dumb luck. My mother was recruited in World War II to work on uh these uh, code breaking. She was one of the, what they call the code girls. But in her father's time, people rode horses into battle. When she was fighting World War II, nobody rode a horse, nobody was serious, rode a horse into battle. In 25 years, everything changed. Everything changed in just two decades. So let's change everything. In one decade, mm. because we have one decade to do it. <laughs> okay, what have you? Let's go. Even, those those guys didn't even. Have, my mother didn't even have the internet. Exactly. You know, yeah, as the joke goes, what did they do all day? Uh, so anyway, there'll be a time where you'll say, "You let people drive cars? You let humans yeah. operate motor vehicles? What? Are you kidding? <laughs> that was, sounds very dangerous. Yeah, it was really dangerous." Crazy and expensive. We are wrecking cars all the time. Things are going to change fast. Let's go, people. Be outraged. Be optimistic. So, Bill, Let's get her done. What are you... We only, we're sadly running out of time. Wish we had more. But we've heard your optimism and we share it. I also wanted to ask you, what are you most outraged about? Oh, I'm, uh, I'm most outraged about... Uh, well... As the CEO of the Planetary Society, we try to be even-handed. We are a political group, but we are not partisan. Mm. But I'm very troubled by this idea that no matter how much someone lies, you stick with them just because you have this. You want to hire conservative judges. That's all I can figure out. That's why anybody sticks with the current president of the U.S. And you, everybody, we've all met people like this, people who lie and then lie about their lie, and then they lie when they don't need to lie. It's just tiring. <laughs> so that is my most outraged thing, is uh, people who win the popular vote right now do not necessarily become the president. That is, uh, that's outrageous. But we're going to fix it. I'll show you how. You know, uh, the state of Colorado, which is what people nowadays are calling a purple state, it's neither entirely conservative nor is it entirely progressive. They have a law proposed uh, that no matter uh, how their presidential vote comes out in Colorado, all of their electoral college votes will go to how the national uh, outcome goes. Yeah. Well, if that happens in Colorado, 
that would probably swing the last election and any future elections. And then adjacent states in the West, where people are just generally more progressive and try things more quickly. Adjacent states, for those of you unfamiliar with the map of the U.S., Nevada, Wyoming, the Dakotas, Arizona, they will also adopt this kind of law. So their electoral college votes go to the national, the winner of the national popular vote. And then in 20 years, let's say four or five election cycles, the electoral college will be eliminated. And the traditions established by what in the U.S. we call the founding fathers will be modified. Change will be built in, will be, uh, will be incorporated, and uh, the world will change in a cool new way. But it will not happen by somebody running for president say, you know, I'm, when I'm president on day one, we're going to eliminate the Electoral College. It's just not, that's not going to happen. That's just not how it works. And so this incremental change, this proposed incremental change, makes me very optimistic about the future. But in the meanwhile, I am what? Outraged. (laughs) (laughs) We are too. We're with you. We're outraged too. We're very outraged. Um, Bill, thank you very much. Thank you very much. It really is uh, is uh, delightful uh, to hear that uh, that you do strike that balance between outrage and optimism uh, that we also share as being the necessary combination in order to move forward. And we are equally as optimistic as you are. Um, and maybe even perhaps more outraged than you. So thank oh, you I'm very pretty much. Outraged. I, I'm, I'm pretty outraged. Okay, good. Uh, so <laughs> before we go, before we go, I encourage all your listeners to check us out at planetary.org. Space exploration, while we're all outraged, space exploration brings people together. Mm. It brings people of both political sides everywhere in the world together. We solve problems that have never been solved before, and we learn more about the cosmos and our place within it. And uh, I'm not going to make this prediction. I'm going to make. I'm going to make this prediction. Hopefully, that in the next 20 years, let's say, in my lifetime, while I'm still alive, we find evidence of life on another world. If we were to find evidence of life on Mars or Europa, the moon of Jupiter with twice as much ocean water as the Earth has, if we were to find evidence of life, let alone something still alive on Mars, everybody on Earth would think very differently about what it means to be a living thing in the cosmos. Very true. Like we are not alone. And then people would be brought together. So it is not a question of... Should we explore space? Should we develop this extraordinary, uh, hopeful, or promising nuclear, uh, I mean, uh, fusion technology? Should we uh, ban uh, genetically modified crops? Should we embrace genetically? It's not one or the other. It's everything. It's everything all at once. That's the key. Let's change the world, people. All Let's right. Go. Excellent, Thank you, Bill. Bill. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so uh, that was a very interesting conversation with Bill. I thought there were some amazing insights there uh, from his experience and from where he sits and things he's worried about, um, but as well as the opportunities that he sees. Uh, Christiana, where, where are you left after that discussion? Well, I, I was impressed with his determination to, you know, this is actually going to change. And why is it going to change, Bill? Because it has to. 
Um, and, and frankly, you know, you, you could say, well, he doesn't really have a good answer to why it's going to change. But actually, that is the good answer. It's actually a matter of making a choice. And it's a choice about not necessarily understanding every single detail of science, because honestly, those who are not natural scientists will, ha will find that very difficult, but understanding the broad concepts and following it, because it's just a choice. We have to make that choice. Anything else is frankly unacceptable. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I, I loved his optimism and I thought it was amazing, you know, the degree of confidence he has in things improving and getting back on top of, you know, a shared sense of science. I also thought, and it's not something I spent a lot of time thinking about, but, you know, I mean, that all this kind of like new space race and, you know, billionaires thinking they're going to go to Mars and all that, I can be a little bit sort of dismissive of it in the sense that, well, we've got a lot of problems here on Earth. We need to deal with it. But, you know, his insistence that space exploration was a human unifier and that the thing that would bring humanity together would be the discovery of life on other planets, kind of like just was flipped a switch for me and was a sort of different sense of whether that happens or not, just that sense of us all being in one collective place with a shared endeavor trying to do a big thing. You know, he's kind of right. And actually, that may be something that is in our future. Um, and I really think it's a mistake to focus on that rather than dealing with our problems here on Earth. But it just sort of like gave a different perspective to me as to what it means to be human at this particular time, um, that we need to figure this stuff out together. If if that does happen and we find um, life on other planets, that will be a massive unifier. We can't rely on it, but it was an interesting thought to me that he identified that as something that will bring us together. Well, I agree with you, but... We have to do a lot down here before we discover life totally, on any other totally. planet. So I think those are on two very different timescales. Um, the, the, the one thought that I was left with, there are, of course, industries who have vested interest in us not believing in the science of whatever it is, climate change yeah. or pulmonary disease caused by tobacco smoking. And that, that was sort of the, the parallel that raised its ugly head for me. Um, and, and truth be told, people stopped smoking as much as they did, not necessarily because they understood all the science of pulmonary cancer and other diseases, but because they reached the conclusion, it's probably just not very healthy for me. And out of their own self-interest, they stopped smoking or at least, or at the interest of those around them, their children and their spouses. And so I'm wondering, you know, are, are we mo hopefully moving in that direction that we're understanding that not acting on climate change is not in my best interest. It's not in the best interest of my family. It's not in the best interest of my city, of my country. So there is a piece here of self-interest that plays a role perhaps even much stronger than the understanding of the underlying science. Yeah, I would agree with that. All right, guys, I think that's a wrap on this week. Uh, we're going to be back on a weekly basis now. Uh, we're all going to be around. We've got a lot going on in the next few weeks. Um, it's a big few weeks. There's a summit, as everybody knows, coming up in New York at the end of September. This has to be a major turning point on climate change on the road to more ambitious action. So there'll be a lot more on that in the coming weeks on Outrage and Optimism. Uh, great to talk to you. Uh, thanks for being here. 
So it just remains for me to say that Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism and is produced by Clay Carnell. The team includes Pete Clutton-Brock, Chloe Revel, Natasha Rivikarnak, Marina Mancilla, Callum Grieve, Zoe Cholakantic, and special thanks this week to Andy Toy. I'd also like to thank Nigel Topping and Michael Northrup. You can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and please do hit subscribe and leave us a review. We also love the feedback, podcast at globaloptimism.com. So many of you have been writing in, and we do try to respond to every email. Thanks for that kind of feedback. We really appreciate it. Please keep them coming. We'll see you next week. <laughs>